Okay, we will dismiss our kids to Praiseville. Kindergarten through third grade, you can make your way to the back. Sean and Haley Merritt are back there ready to receive you at the check-in station. As the kids are making their way to the back, right here off to my right, Brandon and Cassie Gould were just voted in as new members of Edgewood Baptist. Brandon, throw your hand up on behalf of you, Cassie. There you go. All right. That was at our member meeting um, last Sunday night, and Danny Ware, I think, just took his son out to get him to Praiseville. We're uh, anticipating that we'll be installing Danny Ware as a deacon in uh, next week's morning service. So a lot of good things happening at Edgewood between baptism, new members, new deacon. God has been very kind to us, and uh, just continue to stand in awe of how rich his blessings are to undeserving people like us. Um, having said that, let me, uh, before we start, we're, by the way, we'll be in Exodus 20 again, uh, as we have been for the last several weeks going through the Ten Commandments. Uh, let me just uh, say, uh, as we've been going through the, t- through the Ten Commandments, uh, one of the things, I, I'm not going to get an, an actual ver- verbatim quote down, but as I'm... Uh, you know, seeing you out the door at the end of the service on Sunday, uh, one of the common refrains as we've been going through the, through the commandments is some sort of a remark on how big of a sinner I am. I'm not me, I am, right? But people saying that about themselves, okay? Uh, and the, the conviction that the Lord has brought, all of which is, is good, right? Conviction is good. Right? Yes? Yes, conviction is good. It would not be good for, le- to, for him to leave his children with cancerous sin eating away at them and him not taking the time to show them how it's going to be remedied or excised from their body. All right, but, but here's, the, here's the dilemma, and this is where I want to encourage you. I, the, the conversations are necessarily brief at the door, and so I know that we don't get to say everything that we want to say. Okay? But there's a way in which conviction of sin leads into greater, deeper love and appreciation for Jesus Christ. That's the way that it ought to work. So in Romans chapter 7, when Paul is talking about his his struggles, his attempts to live according to the good and righteous commandments of God's law, and he says, I found that I could not do it. Even when I wanted to, I could not do it. He gets towards the end of Romans chapter 7, and he says, Wretched man that I am, who will save me? Who will save me from the body of this death? Next sentence out of his mouth, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And chapter 8 then leads, leads off of that. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For what the law could not do, weak as it was in the flesh, God did for us, sending his Son in the likeness of human flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Right? My prayer continues to be, as we go through the Ten Commandments, that God would be so faithful to us, his people, to 
highlight, to show, to, to point the light of his purity and his holiness, to expose our sin, but that in exposing our sin, we would become all the more grateful and thankful for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, right? Our sins are many, many. His mercy is more. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. We are looking at the seventh commandment. In Exodus 20, 14, the commandment from the Lord says, You will not commit adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that your commandments are good and righteous and true. We want to not only be able to acknowledge that as a confession of faith and trust in you, but we want that confession to bear fruit in our lives. We want to see our hearts conformed to the righteousness of your law. We thank you that we are not left to our own devices to find that kind of righteousness, but that it has been purchased and accomplished for us in the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ, who kept the law in every way without even an ounce or a trace of sin, and that because his obedience now counts for ours, we can be safe and secure in our standing with you. But we also ask, Father, that you would keep us mindful of the fact that while we have received full pardon and cleansing from our sin, that there is no sin debt left outstanding that needs to be settled in your presence. That along with that forgiveness and that pardon comes the transforming work of your grace so that you do not just merely declare us to be right with you, but you set about making us right. And we pray that our time in your word would be a part of that process by which you make us more and more righteous in the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen. You shall not commit adultery. Let me say right out from the outset, there is a lot that could be said here with a command like this. One of the temptations that you have is to continue to go through and to try to cover all of the bases. So necessarily when you talk about adultery, you will talk about marriage, which then leads you to want to say something about singleness or lead you to want to say something about marriage and divorce, or, and, and we just, we're just not going to be able to touch on every aspect that Scripture brings to bear on this commandment. We're going to try to stick to the core or what lies at the root or the foundation of this, although we will build out from this commandment. Uh, so if anything that we say here this morning prods your thinking or provokes questions, that's, that's good. It ought to. And I would encourage you to spend more time in the Word, see what the Lord has to say, or spend some time talking with fellow believers or with some of the elders here at the church to gain more insight and direction. Uh, but, I, um, but pray as you're, as you're listening and as we're thinking together that we would honor the Lord in saying no more, no less than what He would have us to say on this command. You shall not commit adultery, obviously, is an entailment that goes along with marriage, and so we probably ought to say before we even get to the way that we've handled each one of these commandments with what the law prohibits and what the law prescribes, it's just where we are in our day and age, in our society and culture, we probably need to start with a definition of marriage. 
right? There was a time in which that was just a given. Everyone knew what marriage was. Everyone agreed on what marriage was. Not so anymore. So this is by no means a perfect uh, or full definition of marriage, but it at least gets to the essence of it. We'll say right out from the outset, and this is the framework that, that we'll be working off of as we go through our time together this morning. We'll say that marriage is the comprehensive union of one man and one woman from different families in a lifelong covenant relationship. Okay? Marriage is the comprehensive union. By that we mean it is not just one aspect of life, financial or physical or emotional. It is all-inclusive. Marriage is the comprehensive union of one man and one woman from different families in a lifelong covenant relationship. That's marriage. So, we ask then, what does the seventh commandment, the prohibition against adultery, what does it forbid and what does it prescribe? We could say it this way, the seventh commandment prohibits or forbids the violation of a husband and wife's long uh, husband and wife's lifelong exclusive sexual faithfulness by sexual activity with another person the emphasis here on adultery which we'll talk about here a little bit more in just a minute is predominantly concerned with sexual union and fidelity that's not to say that there aren't other ways to betray or to destroy a marriage but it is to say that in this commandment it is the physical union and sanctity of marriage that is being guarded and protected so the seventh commandment prohibits the violation of a husband and wife's lifelong exclusive sexual faithfulness by or through the sexual activity with another person Everything that the law prohibits, it also, on the flip side, prescribes or points us in a different direction. We would say then that in light of that prohibition that the marriage bed, as it's called in Hebrews chapter 13, the the sanctity of that being the direction that we're being pointed in, that what the seventh command prescribes is the guarding of marital intimacy through lifelong fidelity wholehearted devotion and joyful intimacy it's not merely saying don't do this although it is saying that it's saying don't do this because this is the way that you want to go in marriage your own or as you view the marriages of other people We want to be, as God's people, the kind of people who guard marital intimacy. We long to see marriages thriving and flourishing through lifelong fidelity. It ought to be celebrated here at Edgewood and anywhere Christians are gathered when we hear that we have a couple in our midst who have celebrated 55 years of marriage. That was Jerry and June Gaylor a couple weeks ago. 60 years of marriage. The Lord is pleased and honored with that. So what does the seventh commandment have to say about the sanctity of marriage or about the way that we are to preserve and to guard it? 
One of the things that we want to say is that what's interesting about this seventh command is that there is no question that the command is addressing sexual purity, but the sexual purity of a kind that exists properly in marriage. Let me rephrase it this way. Of all the things that God could have said in this summary overview of his law, right? So the Ten Commandments are in some ways sort of a a summary that the rest of the law is going to go to expound as you move through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The ten represent the whole. Of all the things that God could have said pertaining to sexual ethics and morality, he chose to start with a statement that pertains directly to marriage. Marriage, then, we ought to consider, lies at the center of true sexual morality. Marriage is foundational. If God's people don't get marriage right, they will not get purity right, at least in terms of a sexual ethic. That will be lost. Now, the law will go on to forbid all kinds of different forms of sexual sin and sexual activity. So it branches off of this, but this is what lies at the root of sexual purity, the sanctity of marriage. Another thing that's interesting about this that we want to consider is that it's not merely a command that's given to preserve marriage, but a command that's given to preserve marriage and family. And the way that this shows up, interestingly enough, is that there are different penalties that God gives for immorality that is committed against a married woman as opposed to a single woman. Technically speaking, from an Old Testament perspective, adultery is very narrowly defined as pertaining to the for the violation of a marriage. And oftentimes, it's specifically stated to be the kind of violation of a marriage that involves a married woman. The reason that God prioritizes the sanctity of marriage, particularly with saying a married woman is off limits for any man, married or not, is because uniquely, the woman has the ability to bear life from the sexual union, so that violating the sanctity of a marriage in intervening that way, in that sinful, immoral way, also carries with it the added risk and consequences that you destroy the cohesiveness of a family. Later in the law, One of the ways that the sanctity, not just of marriage, but of the family comes into view is that the Lord gives a command in Deuteronomy that he says, no illegitimate person, no one of illegitimate birth is permitted to enter into the assembly of the Lord. It's not merely what adultery does to marriage, although that lies first and foremost at the destructiveness of it, but the fact that the ongoing consequences of adultery also wreak havoc on the couple and on the family. Why would God be so concerned that marriage not be tampered with? 
two reasons, at least two that we could give. God is not intending for this command, by this command, to present himself as something of a cosmic killjoy. Well, if it weren't for the seventh command, it would just be free love all the time, and wouldn't life be a better place? No, not at all. God is, God is protecting his people in two ways. Number one, this command guards God's blessing to his people. So if, hold your place here. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. Look at the blessings that God gives in marriage. In verse 26, God says, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then notice verse 28. God blessed them, blessed male and female, blessed man and woman, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. God intends for the union of man and woman to be a measure by which he extends his creation blessing to every succeeding generation. Namely, or we could say one of the major ways that that's done, is through the ability to bear fruit in that relationship. In other words, to have children. Adam cannot create children on his own. Eve cannot create children on her own. But Adam and Eve together, according to God's wise and good design, are able to create life together. And it is God's unique blessing on his creation that enables this man and this woman to come together and in a moment of joy and delight with one another to create life. What a gift that is. Adultery threatens to ruin that good gift. Another way that we see the blessing that God is guarding through the prohibition against adultery comes later in Genesis chapter, or it comes in Genesis chapter 2 a little bit later. Look at the very end of the chapter. Skip down at verse 22. This is when we're getting in a little bit more of the detail. This is how God goes about creating a woman. Genesis 2.22, The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they will become one flesh. You, you hear, you're supposed to read Adam's statement there as a statement of joy and excitement. This, her, she, this is what I needed. This is who I want. 
this person, this woman has been made for me. And God says this first union, this first marriage was put together in such a way that it was a paradigm for all the marriages to come after it. That just as in 128, God blesses marriage with the capacity to bear fruit by giving life in the form of children, by working together to exercise rule and dominion over his creation. There is a way in which God in his abundant goodness even goes so far as to make that partnering exceedingly joyful and rich and rewarding. This woman was made for me. I was made for this woman. Adultery wrecks that. It says that what God has given to me or has given to her or what God has given to them is not sufficient. It's not adequate. God is keeping things from me that I think I ought to have. I want more than what God has given me. This blessing does not satisfy me. Do you hear that? Therefore, I will go and I will take what belongs to another man or I will take what belongs to another woman. That's a rejection of the goodness of God in the blessing of marriage. So by God giving his people the prohibition not to commit adultery, he intends to guard a gift that he has given, not just simply to us, but to all of creation, all of society. The gift of marriage is something that ought to be sanctified and revered and guarded and kept safe because it is a good gift that ought not to be tampered with. The other reason that God would give a prohibition against adultery is because not only does it guard a very unique and powerful gift that he has given to us, but because it guards God's revelation of his redemptive work. What happens when a man and a woman are brought together? When you, when you sit through a wedding ceremony, you recognize what you're witnessing is some sort of projection of God's work of redemption in Christ. There is a man who comes and who says, out of all the other women on the earth, I've come for this one woman. She's mine. And the woman comes and says, Outside of all the other suitors and all the other people who would vie for my affection and my devotion, I'm turning my back on all of them and I'm going with him. What does God say to his people in Exodus 19? After he brings his people out of Egypt, after he redeems them, when he's about to come down on Sinai and he's getting them ready to hear more from what it is that he wants them to know, about life with him. He says, you've seen what I've done, how I brought you on eagle's wings out of Egypt to myself. And he says, if you will keep my commandments, you will be to me a people for my own possession, even though all the earth is mine. Exodus 19.5. In other words, I own all of this. All of these people belong to me. 
But I have taken you in a unique and special way that cannot be compared with my relationship to any other people. Marriage gives us some framework or some capacity to recognize that aspect of our covenant relationship with the Lord. Go over to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Here's another way that it's articulated along the same lines, but in a slightly different way. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Verse 15. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all all peoples as it is to this day. That's what marriage symbolizes. That's what it represents. And if a society or a culture begins to lose the significance, the symbolism of marriage, there is a way in which the very work of God in redemption, that witness that marriage serves to point others to the unique covenant love that God has for his people, that is lost. In the same way that a man gives himself exclusively to a woman, in that same way God has exclusively given himself to his people. In the same way, that a woman responds to the calls and the overtures of her bridegroom, of her husband, in the same way the church has heard the voice of her shepherd, of her bridegroom, and gone out to him to join him, to be with him. And Paul makes it abundantly clear in Ephesians 5. He actually quotes from Genesis, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, Paul says. But I am speaking in regard to Christ and the church. The mystery of a union between man and woman is great. If you've lived marriage, you know it is a great mystery. Paul says, greater than that mystery is the way that God in Christ has bound himself to his people. All of this that we're talking about with marriage and adultery, all of this is just a model to point us to the greater, enduring, more permanent love that we find in Jesus Christ. And we make a mockery out of that covenant fidelity and love when we destroy marriage. It's a tragedy that too often today, God's people will talk about the unfailing love that we have been given in Christ, and yet find it hard to demonstrate or to give witness or example to that unfailing love in marriage.
It's a tragedy that God calls his people to imitate an eternal, perfect love that we then turn and attempt to mimic in very partial, half-hearted ways. So that whereas God says, I will take you warts and all, I will take you in your weakness, I will take you in your uncleanness, and I will fix you up, I will remain true and faithful, we turn the image of that kind of covenant love into something that is merely about creature comfort and personal preference. Marriage gets to the very goodness of God's created order, and marriage gets to, points us in the direction of God's kindness in redemption. And a people who begin to lose the significance of marriage will automatically, will by necessity, begin to lose and miss the goodness of God in the way that he has ordered society, and they will begin to find it difficult to imagine and think about what it means to be bound covenantally to their maker and their husband. Therefore, adultery was prohibited. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, pick up with me at verse 27. Here's Jesus letting us know that while the law is good and right to prohibit adultery, to point his people in the direction of protecting and preserving marriage, that the law is pointing to a greater purity that Christ now comes to reveal fully. So Matthew 5, 27, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, you will not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right hand makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. You remember what Jesus said last week about the, the command, the, the law's requirement that you not murder? And Jesus says, yes, that's right. You shouldn't murder. That's, that's forbidden. It's prohibited. But what that law was pointing to was the idea that you would be personally invested in seeing the life of your neighbor thrive and flourish such that 
If you hold anger in your heart, or if anger comes out in an outburst towards your neighbor or someone that you have come into contact with, that anger that you have expressed, even if you don't strike that person across from you, makes you morally culpable. The anger that you express is the same anger that resides in the heart of the man who commits murder. And Jesus does the same thing here with the prohibition to adultery. Do not commit adultery. But is that all that God was after with his people? Just merely the fact that we're not going to be jumping into bed with someone that's not our spouse? Is that all that God cared about? No. Jesus says the real righteousness that the Father wants from his people is not just the kind of righteousness that, righteousness that says, I will not engage in this physical act. It is the kind of righteousness that says, I will not even think or entertain that unrighteous act. That's the purity that God is calling his people to. So that according to Jesus... Lust is the moral equivalent of, adult, of adultery. One of the old writers said it best. Every lustful thought would turn into adultery if it had the opportunity and the time. That's what lust is. It is a thinking about, a reflecting on, a setting my heart and affections on taking someone that does not belong to me in a uniquely sanctified relationship. And we want to say, well, that's no big deal. As long as I just keep it inside and it doesn't come out in any way, it's all good. I'm not hurting anyone. I'm not harming anyone. Is that what Jesus says? Jesus says, if you look on another person to lust after them, that sin that grievous sin, you need to deal with that in a radical way such that you would be better off to gouge your eye out to keep you from looking on another woman inappropriately. You would be better off doing that than merely continuing to entertain lustful thoughts. Why? Because Jesus says you are better in light of eternity to enter into your reward missing an eye than to go into eternity with both your eyes but going into hell because your soul has been corrupted by lust. This means, by way of practical application, that any lustful glance at another person is categorically by Jesus defined as sinful. 
that sin, that look, that impulse, that dwelling on that person is sufficient guilt were it not for the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ, for his justifying work, is sufficient to cast you into hell. This also means that not only is every lustful glance, every evil motive of the heart at the grocery store, on the road, in the classroom, in the office, walking through the neighborhood or the park, not only is that sinful, it's also sinful and evil and wicked and wrong when those kinds of glances are given to images that I view online. Pornography is evil. There is absolutely no justification for it. There is no good and righteous and wholesome way in which pornography can be used, whether inside or outside of marriage. Pornography is the stirring up of desires and affections that are wrongly ordered. It is the harboring and the treasuring of lustful glances and thoughts at someone who is not your spouse and thinking and acting as if they were. Jesus would say, that pornography, no matter what the culture around us wants to say, no matter how much it wants to normalize it, that pornography is the sin of adultery. Let's also say and acknowledge that one of the other things that we need to do is to recognize that so far as Jesus is directing his people to guard and preserve the sanctity of marriage, that each man keep to his wife and each wife keep to her husband and that there be no violation or intervention, even down to the very thought and intention of the heart. It is possible to have adulterous-like thoughts even when you look at another person and say, I wish he were my husband may not even be sexual. But the wanting of someone else for yourself, that is adulterous. To look at another woman and to say, I wish she were my wife instead of this wife, that is adulterous. And Jesus still isn't done. We're undone by the time Jesus is done, but he's not done yet. So you go back to Matthew chapter 5. I'm already done for. Right? If this is the direction that the law is pointing in, I don't have that kind of purity. I can't maintain it. Look at what Jesus says in the next verses, in verses 31 and 32. 
It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, presumably in the remarriage. Makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus says that with one rare exception, divorce is the moral equivalent of adultery. What are we going to do with that? You're going to tell Jesus to lighten up? You're going to tell him divorce is really not that big of a deal? You're going to tell him that, well, Jesus, we understand that in most circumstances, but you don't really understand where I am. You don't understand the challenges that we face. This is really what is best and right and good. You're going to tell Jesus that? If adultery runs the risk of ruining a marriage, certainly divorce ruins a marriage. It severs it. One of the things that we ought to consider, just in terms of the mutual accountability and encouragement that we give to one another, we ought to be jealous not only for our own personal marriages, but even if I'm not married, right, I'm single or I'm widowed or a widower or something like that, I ought to be jealous for the good of other marriages. So in light of what Jesus says here about the danger of divorce, rather than just providing a listening ear and commiserating with someone such that we communicate the idea, well, how are we going to find a way to get you out of this? What God's people ought to be doing with love and grace and compassion is saying, Let's look and find out how Jesus is going to get you through this, not out of it. Christ will be sufficient. Christ will hold you. Jesus will give you what you need to keep your marriage and to remain true. I don't know that it is possible for anyone to go through the seventh commandment about adultery to hear the way that Jesus builds on that command and his demand for purity and righteousness. And to walk out of this room and to say, I'm good on that command. Glad all those other people were here to hear that. They really needed it. Not me. And so to try to bring us back to where our hope is, because if all we do is look at the requirement of the law and say, I can't rise to that standard, you're just going to be demoralized, you're going to wallow in defeat, you're going to succumb to sin over and over again. But if we sing with Paul, wretched people that we are, who will save us 
from the body of this death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Every impure thought, every impure glance, every lingering look, every broken relationship, every unbiblical divorce, every sin that is committed in violation directly and indirectly to the seventh command, every single sin has been paid for by Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus says, if you have looked lustfully on another person, you are guilty of adultery. If you're guilty of adultery, even by a lustful glance, that means you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, such were, past tense, some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. There's not a single person in this room who could walk out and say, I stand right before God, the holy and righteous judge, because I have never broken the letter or the spirit of the seventh command. No one. And every single one of us who stand as violators and breakers of that law can walk out of here with joy in our hearts rather than fear and dread. Because we know that we stand guilty before the bar of justice, but we also know that we stand in Christ. And Christ has taken lustful, adulterous people and has sanctified them and justified them and counted them right before our God. Let's pray. God, if you were to count our iniquities, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Help us, Father, to see that every sin that we commit, whether physically or immaterially, whether in our mind or in our actions, is first and foremost a sin and offense against you. Against you and you only have we sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
we acknowledge that left to ourselves, we are guilty of breaking your commands. That even knowing what your command is, we still disobey. But we praise you and thank you that you have sent your Son to be the substitute, to be the atoning work for our sin, that your Holy Spirit regenerates us and gives us new hearts so that we long to be more righteous, so that we do not want to dwell and revel in sin. Father, cultivate a purity and a holiness here among your people at Edgewood that would look and sound and feel different than anything that the world has to offer. May it be the kind of holiness and righteousness that aligns with your truth, and may it be attractive to those people who find themselves lost in their sin and rebellion, that they would come to find the saving work of Jesus Christ more than sufficient to cover their sins. We love you and we praise you for all that you've done for us. Amen.